Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 15th, 2021, and this is episode 2858 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, we're going to do today what I promised I would do on Tuesday. Tuesday we talked about... The Modern Economic Survival Mindset. And we talked about it a lot from how to approach life and how to make decisions in your life that would affect your income and your debt, etc., everything else for the rest of your life. And I said as I went through that, because it became a very personal story, because I really didn't, I didn't outline that one with a bunch of bullet points or anything, so I didn't even really know what it was going to be when I would give birth to it by presenting it. It was just from the heart, what I've learned in my life, the experiences that I've had, the way that I approach making economic decisions, especially when it comes to how I'm spending my time. That's a huge part of, of what affects our economics going forward. It can be direct or indirect. We can spend our time doing very productive things that produce a lot of money, and that, of course, can add to our income, and that can increase our longevity with wealth, as long as we harness it right. Um, or we can spend our time in very wasteful ways. Uh, maybe even wasteful spending. So maybe we've done a good job of setting things up to have high income, but if we also spend a large amount of our time disposing of our income in, in, in unintelligent ways, then we can you know, have a really detrimental effect on us. So that's where that episode kind of came from and what I was thinking at the time. And as I did all this, it, it, it kept bringing me back to the permaculture ethos and mindset um, known as the eight forms of capital. And, and I always give credit whenever I use somebody else's concept. So Ethan Rollins, the gentleman that came up with this, this eight forms of capital, he wrote an article on it in like 2011. As far as I remember, I first came across it in 2012. So this is not new. I've talked about it before. I first looked at it and started uh, extrapolating from it nine years ago. I have a link in the episode today along with the image that I borrowed from his article to help make things more clear. That also links to that article, giving full credit, again, to Ethan Rowland uh, at Appleseed Permaculture. And I think it's one of the best works it's ever done. I don't agree 100% with his assessments. I agree 99%. That's pretty damn good. So what I'm going to do today as I go through this, I'm going to go through these eight forms of capital. There's social capital, material capital, financial capital, living capital, intellectual capital, experiential capital, spiritual capital, and cultural capital. I'm going to, each one of these, he wrote a fairly long article, but each form of capital he broke out to a fairly short uh, paragraph each. And so, so that the original idea is fully understood, I will read as I cover each one of these what Ethan had to say about that particular form. Then I'll talk about what I agree with and what I disagree with, and there'll be very little in the disagree category. Sometimes it's basically more an extrapolation. He's saying this, and I agree, but also this. And then I'll talk about how if you're building a business or a life in general, you should be applying the knowledge that this type of capital exists and has power in either your business, your employment, or your life, or all three if you're really switched on. Because I think what we first have to do is understand what capital is. Capital itself is a thing of value that can be converted to other types of capital 
and or traded for other things of value. So if you are creating a type of capital in your life and you're not aware that you're doing it, then you have what you call stranded capital or underutilized capital. Occasionally I talk about like the businesses I was involved with in the past before I did TSP. One was a business called Syrian that I, that I worked with Neil Franklin on. And in Syrian what we did is we did very complex um, artificial intelligence really was what we were working with driven algorithms that went into and deeply analyzed the networks of cellular telephone providers like AT&T, like Sprint, etc. And what we were actually looking for is what we would call stranded capital. There was money in those networks that was not being fully utilized, and there were being decisions made that made more stranded capital. And what I mean by that is the equipment that we were telling them, yeah, it's time to add that, or you need to add it by this point, This is very expensive equipment, like hundreds of millions of dollars of equipment per location this equipment went in. So you guys think, you look at a cellular tower, and you see that tower, and you think, okay, well, that tower is how my call gets to Grandma in Georgia. No, that, that tower is how your call gets into the network. The network then gets it to Grandma in Georgia. It doesn't go tower to tower to tower to tower. There's a back-end side of this. That is a far more expensive equipment back there, and I won't get into it because it'll bore most of you. But just to understand, we're talking about billions of dollars expenditures annually to maintain one of these networks. And you, what you're looking at is growth. Where will my growth be and when will my growth be there? Well, if AT&T makes a decision because one of their markets seems really hot to them, and they put billions of dollars of equipment into a, a network in, let's say, New York City. And they didn't need to this year. You might think, oh, well, they're going to need it eventually. They will, but that capital's now stranded. You have billions of dollars that could be being used somewhere else to build your business, to return shareholder value, to advance, to innovate, etc. And it's tied up in this equipment that didn't need to go in for another six months. And if you know precisely when you need to, you can still build a buffer, maybe we have 60 days on this side of the buffer, but that frees up hundreds of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of stranded capital throughout all the cellular networks in the world. That's why we built that company, to do just that. That sounds weird. It sounds huge, big, giant thing so far above where most of your, most of your daily thoughts are, and your thoughts don't need to be up there. You don't need to worry about that It's, unless you're going to be in that business. Everything I told you seems and in a way is pointless, except the concept. If you have built up extensive intellectual capital and you're not utilizing it, you have stranded capital. You could free that intellectual capital to do something for you, or your spiritual capital, or your cultural capital, or your living capital, or your material capital, or even your financial capital. And definitely the one I think a lot of people don't realize what they have in is social capital. And so we're going to go through these today and figure out, hey, how do we make sure we're building them up? How do we make sure we're using them properly and ethically and not wasting them? Because I think some people would like, look at social capital. You know, that's pretty easy to understand from what it is. Basically, your network of people you know and trust you. And a lot of people think, well, if I am using my, <clears throat> my social capital, I'm kind of taking advantage of people. Well, if you're doing good things with your social capital, by not using it, those things don't happen. And it's actually unethical not to use the leverage that you have to do things that you feel are right in the world that are for the benefit of yourself and others.
as long as you're not <clears throat> stealing from people, as long as you're not defrauding people, and, and that's the thing about social capital, it's a self-regulating form of capital. You start defrauding people, you start treating people unfairly, then your social capital begins to erode itself very, very quickly. It's not a type of power. Like, you can use financial capital for evil. And if you do it within the bounds of, quote-unquote, the law, even though it's evil as shit, you can, for a long time, continue to leverage and build financial capital, even doing things that are very evil. Since social capital involves voluntary interactions, 100% voluntary interactions, it's very quick to be eroded and damaged. So, anyway, that's the mindset we're coming at this today. Um, with, and, and I'm going to plow right into it. It's just kind of a lead up there. And we're going to start out by, I want to tell you, before I go through these individually, the graphic that if you're listening to the audio on, you know, on iTunes or Stitcher or something, and you're not on the website hitting the player, you can't see this graphic. So I kind of want to give this to you to set your mind in the right place going forward. So, Capital isn't necessarily a currency, right? Um, the capital is the root. The currency is the derivative that we use to exchange or that where the value is expressed. And then the currency, it complexes. This is maybe a little high level here. But by exercising the capital, you extract a currency and it complexes to a real thing, a real effect in the world. So... With that in mind, Ethan came up with eight forms of currency and what they complex to coming out of the forms of capital. So with social capital, the currency is connections. It complexes to influence and relationships. With material capital, the currency are the materials themselves. Natural resources is the way we think in permaculture, but I would tell you that all resources are natural resources or derive or are derived from natural resources. Because what do we have that doesn't come from something natural? And I know you can think about all these weird uh, new chemicals or something that they're, they're building by coming. It all comes from the elements that we have, right? Pieced back together if you're talking about a chemical. The most unnatural assembly of things that you can think of was assembled from natural materials because we don't have anything but natural materials. We are not yet able to use Star Trek technology and create a, a, a new material item from energy. It has to come from existing material. We're, we're not, we don't have the power of the fusion reactor of a star to make more gold or to make more boron. We have what we have. So all material is, is that. So when we take material capital, we get natural resources and materials as a form of currency, and those complex to tools and buildings and infrastructure and anything that you pick up and touch that didn't come that way in the first place. I just happen, I'm not even sure why it's in here. I have a uh, sawzall blade sitting on my desk, and it's made from steel. Well, those are base metals that are in there that made that steel. And there's paint on there that was made from other materials and markings. And then there's tool uh, cuts that make the, the thing actually have a blade and make it a shape where it'll stick into that DeWalt Sawzall of mine, right? Or I should say, reciprocating saw. Um, this is material capital that I'm holding in my hand. You can't see me, but I'm holding it in my hand right now. But it took the, the base material being a currency that was worked 
to turn it into a tool, which is exactly what he has in his graphic. Uh, financial capital, we think of as money. This is the one that's the easiest thing for people to understand, but it's actually the most complicated thing for people to understand because people think they understand money because you look at money, you touch money, you say it's money. We use it every day, so we, we lull ourselves to understanding it. Um, Ethan says that money complexes to financial instruments and securities. Um, yes, it, it, and it really what it is is the means of exchange that allows us to convert all the other forms of capital into other forms of capital. And it's incredibly important because if we don't have money, we can't have human society. And, and that's really a hard thing to understand. I'll save it for when I do the deeper analysis. But I just want you to think about that as we, we go through this, this initial overlay. If you didn't have money, you couldn't have modern human society. Maybe someday we'll evolve to a point where we could. But in some ways, I doubt it. We'll have to have some mechanism of accounting. This is why I always say, uh, and I differ with my good friend Vin Armani on this, that all financial capital is a ledger of accounting. There's just, you know, better ledgers. Some are better ledgers than other. But the way, what is, I'm going to save it because this is really kind of critical to when I do the analysis. Living capital, living capital, the, the currency we're talking about then is carbon, nitrogen, water. Right, it is it is the earth, and it is the the base elements, and the fact that it rains. It's that it's it's that few inches of topsoil, and, and and that that precipitation that allows all life on earth to exist. That's the currency of living capital, and it complexes to soil, living organisms, land, and ecosystems. Right, um, in intellectual capital are ideas and knowledge. That's the currency that is intellectual capital. That's, that's how it's expressed, and that's how it's exchanged. That's how you know it's a currency. If I explain an idea to you, if you understand it, I've transferred it. It's money, in a way. It's a currency. I've now given you something of value. You now possess it. Unlike what we usually think of as a currency... It actually is more powerful the more it can be counterfeited. If you want to debase a financial currency, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, you, you print too much of it, and then you debase it. Now, with intellectual capital, you know, IPR, we can, we can take something that could have been really, really, really valuable to a few people by protecting it under like a patent, And, and, and it can, that can be devalued by distribution of the knowledge without a legal protection of something like a patent. However, it actually becomes more powerful the more distributed and decentralized that becomes because more people can use it. And it can radically transform the world. And I, an idea or piece of knowledge, you know, it complexes to words, images, intellectual property, and the ability to take material capital and complex those things into tools, building, and infrastructure. All of these things interrelate and interchange. Again, what makes capital capital is it can be, it can be transformed from one form into another. I can give you an idea or knowledge that you might pay me for. Some of you are members of my MSB. Some of you do it just like you just make a financial calculation, which I hope everybody does. If everybody did the financial analysis there, I'd have, I'd have a hundred thousand more members. And I'd be richer than I can imagine. I mean, honestly, because you just go, well, I make money by doing this, so duh. 
But many people, the reason you join the MSB, even if you get the discounts, is you're like, you know what, I think the stuff this guy tells me every day, even if I listen a couple times a week, is worth 50 bucks a year. So I'm going to voluntarily exchange money for those knowledge and ideas. That's an exchange of capital. Uh, next up, experiential capital. He calls the currency in that action. Action. And he says that the complexing nature of this is embodied experience or wisdom. Um, yeah, I think that intellectual, I'm sorry, experiential capital is obtained through action. And in that way, maybe it is a currency by exercising the idea, by actually trying to build the knife, by actually planting the garden. I gain the experience. So the action derives the experiential capital. But the action, I guess it could be the currency if I'm exchanging it with you. Since I have the experience to, let's say, design a permaculture system, if I sell that in the concept of I could do it two ways. I could do it with intellectual capital. Here's how to do it. I can do it with experiential capital. Since I've done it, I'll do it for you in exchange for financial capital. right? And that Complex is to embodied experience and wisdom. There is a big difference watching someone who has the basic knowledge in woodworking frame a house and watching somebody who's framed a hundred houses frame their hundred and first house. The difference is night and day, and you see it almost instantly. And if you don't know how to do it, you watch the guy framing you know, maybe a second house, and he knows the basics of how to do it. And you go, man, he looks like he's pretty switched on. He knows what he's doing. And then you watch somebody who's done it a hundred times. And you're like, wow, there's mastery. That comes from action. Spiritual capital. Uh, the currency that, that Ethan gives is prayer, intention, faith, and karma. And it complexes to spiritual attainment. This is one I agree with, but I think there's an and also. And I'll save my end also for my longer review. And then we have cultural capital. Songs, stories, and rituals are the currency of cultural capital. And I think storytelling is the primary way that humans have handed down cultural capital. Even in a world where we can document almost everything anybody ever says or does, The way we understand it is through stories, through ritual. And songs, you know, when I look, when somebody says story and song, I'm like, okay, so they're the same thing. Songs are stories. Songs are stories. And that complex is to community. If you want community, you have to have strong social, I'm sorry, strong cultural capital. That's his assessment. So let me go through these. And we'll talk about how they fit in as far as being able to grow a life, grow a business, etc. So intellectual capital is what we're going to lead off with. Intellectual capital, I'm reading verbatim Ethan's article from 2011 here. Intellectual capital is best described as knowledge asset. The majority of the current global education system is focused on imparting intellectual capital whether or not it is the most useful form of capital for creating resilient and thriving communities. Having intellectual capital is touted as the surest way to be successful. Science and research can focus on obtaining intellectual capital or truth. 
though it is often motivated by the desire for financial or social capital. For example, going to university is primarily an exchange of financial capital for intellectual capital. It's supposed to prepare people for the rest of their lives in the world. He, 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 he protects my critique here by saying it is supposed to, inferring that maybe it doesn't. But I'm going to tell you that I think if you, if you look at intellectual capital in regards to going to university, the primary thing that you're paying for at a university is future financial capital. That's the calculus in the head. And if you're smart, social capital. Now, if you go to Timbuktu University, third tier in Nebraska, and you spend most of your time drinking booze with a bunch of party guys that have no real future in their life, all getting gender studies degrees, you're not going to get a lot of social capital advantage out of that. You're really not. But if you go to an upper-level school in a serious field of study, and you take things seriously, and as a you know, a guy, you go into fraternity, a female, maybe you go into sorority, something like that, and you're going to school with affluent to wealthy cohorts, then the, the, the most valuable thing you walk away from, a really top-tier institution like MIT or Harvard University or Princeton, might be the social capital. Now, I think that in the right field of study, those schools actually, as much as I don't like things about them, I think they do a fantastic job of educating people in their field of study as long as there's, it's, it's a real field of study. You, you come out of MIT with an engineering degree. You are one of the best engineers that exists at the time. right? So I'm not always putting down college. But I think that, okay, that's great. Do you know how many great engineers there are that don't have a pot to piss in? But the engineer that has the idea that knows people who are worth billions who are seeking ideas, the real leverage there becomes the social capital. Intellectual capital is a business owner, is all of the things that you know and all of the ideas that you have, right? And, and if you have employees, it's collectively, if you manage it right, all of their ideas as well. And it should be cultivated, and it generally isn't. The larger an organization gets, the more like royalty the top brass are treated, the more afraid to talk to them people are, even when they're receptive. I listened to a fascinating interview yesterday. I can't even remember what show it was on. It's just like it just naturally was the next one available in a podcast feed. And the guy on it was explaining why Silicon Valley doesn't get Bitcoin. But he used to work for Uber when Uber was still kind of in its late forming stages, right? And they were developing the Rider app and everything like that. And he said in Uber, you were encouraged to step on toes, including the CEOs. And what they had done is they had started giving employees free ride credits. And they did it in a way that severely disadvantaged any employee that came in after 2016. And this guy was pretty low level at the time. Like he was not, you know, a C level or director level guy. And he basically calls out publicly, and they had these internal forums, kind of like we have public forums, they have like, like intranet forums, and basically says the CEO is wrong and it's damaging employee morale, made enough of a case for it and got enough people bitching about it that the COO threw his clout behind it and they changed the policy. And it wasn't like the CEO's like, who is this dweeb, and went to his desk and crushed him like a bug. He may have pushed back. Because if you're going to step on toes, you got to be willing to handle the pushback. 
But by having the environment where it was encouraged versus discouraged and where you were allowed to do it, and even if your idea washed out, it was simply that was an idea. I'm glad you brought it up. Clearly you were wrong. No one agrees with you. Or, you know what? Clearly I was wrong. Everybody agrees with you. We're hurting employee morale here. That's stupid. Let's change that. That's an example of harnessing intellectual capital. Listening to your people. There were a lot of times coming up in the world where I was at a, you know, like a leader position, a lead tech when I was in cabling and stuff, when I was at a C-level officer position, a VP position, and I had people bring those types of things to me. I'm sure there were times they thought, he's just a dick. He didn't listen. I always listened. I always considered. And there were even times I said no. And two days later, came back and said, let's talk about that again. I've had time to think about it now. And that is incredibly powerful. For my business, which seems like a one-man show, my intellectual capital base is you guys. I have people that completely run social media platforms, honest to God, for me, doing things with them I could never do because they want to. But it's their knowledge that enables that. When you got guys like tricking the shit out of your Discord server that you didn't even set up, that's badass intellectual capital. So I pay for intellectual capital, but I also have built a community where the intellectual capital naturally is exchanged. Not necessarily just with me. Not necessarily just for my benefit. There are tons of people who have taken their two ideas in these communities and put them together and went and did something else. That's how you know you're doing something that's natural. Because when you, when you plant an oak tree and it starts dropping acorns, it doesn't only grow oaks close to itself. It grows some far away. And they, they, they pop up wherever is a good place for an oak to grow. When we get into spiritual capital, what Ethan says about this is one who practices their religion, spirituality, or other means of connection to self and universe, one may accumulate spiritual capital. It contains aspects of intellectual and experiential capital, but it is deeper and more personal and less quantifiable. Many, many of the world's religions include the concept of the great chain of being, um, an understanding of the existence where spiritual attainment in this context, the accumulation of spiritual capital, leads to different levels of being. Um, I like to make that a lot more materialistic, uh, a lot easier to understand. Again, going back in his current, he, he called the currency of spiritual capital prayer, intention, faith, and karma, and then the, 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 way that that complexes is to spiritual attainment. I think what you're really talking about here is being a content and happy person. A content and happy person. Truly content and happy. And that doesn't necessarily mean just being able to buy all the shit you want. How many rich people end up killing themselves? Well, they certainly didn't have much spiritual capital. Think about a comedian, Robin Williams. The man was worth enough money he could have had. You know, I said I'm going to buy Jack a stand. He could have had Robin a stand. No problem. Easy. There ain't nothing the man could have had, could have wanted that he couldn't have. Nothing. As far as a material item. Enough money to buy literally anything you want. The more you become financially successful without significant spiritual capital, the more miserable you will become. Because... If you're miserable but broke, 
then in your mind you have a reason for your misery. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Like, if when I get more money, I'll be happy. So you get a little more money, and maybe you can get a little happier, but you're still miserable, so it worked. When I get more money, I'll be happy. When I get more money, I'll be happy. When I get more, you see how it works? But if, let's say you, you, you're a miserable person, and somebody says, you know what? I want to cure your misery. Here's $100 million. Now, folks, $100 million is, is not like getting a million dollars. You're literally, you could have, you know, Robin or Jackistan or fuck off a stand, as I call it sometimes, too. You can have literally anything material you want in the world. And if you're half, if you have half the IQ of a goose, you can do it forever and never not have money. You will never have to worry about not having money or not having the physical things that you want. Again, you can be overly stupid and blow it all, but it's hard at that level. Well, imagine you're there and you're still miserable. It's, it's, it's pretty somber, isn't it? So when we develop spiritual capital, to me, what we do is we develop a sense of purpose. A sense of purpose and a sense of import, self-importance in a good way. We develop mastery of ourselves. If we do that through Christianity, great. If we do that through Judaism, great. If we do that through Buddhism, great. Hinduism, great. Zoroastrianism, great. Panantheism, great. Anything. If it works for you, great. But it doesn't have to have a name. When you're able to simply contemplate how small you are in the universe, how insignificant you are in the universe... Because if we start thinking about ourselves and our significance on the planet, even some of the most influential people on this planet are insignificant to this planet. You, all you got to do is stand in one of the great wonders of our planet and, and you realize the insignificant, less than the impact of an insect you really are in the grand total scheme of things. And I don't care if you're Steve Jobs or passed on now, or Tim Cook that took his place, or Jeff Bezos, or any of the, the oligarchs you can think of, or politicians, or great names, Shakespeare, I don't care who you are, if you really understand the continuum that we exist in, and you stand at a place like the Grand Canyon, or you stand in the middle of the sequoias in the West Coast, and you stand around trees that were growing and existing and living before Christ was born, you realize how insignificant you are. And to me, spiritual contentment comes from understanding that and loving it. Loving that that is the case. And thinking, even as this insignificant thing in the total, I am a co-creator with everything. I impact the lives of people. I, I impact ecosystems. I can turn desert green, and I have also the power to turn green into desert. Power has a responsibility. Being content with and at peace with and willing to use that power for good, to me, is real spiritual capital. And again, I don't care what religion it comes from, but getting to that point. Within a business, when you're dealing with employees, this is something that's way too deep to oversee, but certainly creating a culture in a company that leads people to as be able to explore this and to have as much of it for themselves as possible 
result in a workforce that's happy to be where they are and feels like what they're doing matters. It's probably the trickiest one to skin as an entrepreneur. But the, this is one of those things. Where can you control it? Where can you have influence on it? With yourself. And if you're a leader and you have that, you'll be a better leader. And you'll be the type of person people want to follow. Next up is one of the most valuable forms of capital that individuals don't put on their balance sheets. Companies do. Companies call it goodwill. You want to see one of the biggest assets on the McDonald's, Inc. balance sheet. We learn about this in accounting. It's called goodwill. And what that goodwill means for McDonald's is you're driving down the road. You're hungry. You look ahead and you see golden arches. Now, you either like or don't like McDonald's, but you know what it is. And even if you're not a huge fan, if everything else around it kind of sucks, you know what you're going to get and you're likely to go there. And some people love it and they're going to go there all the time and some people never will. But overall, there are billions of people that recognize that thing and they understand that brand, and they know what it means, and therefore they gravitate towards it. So it says extensive financial value, but it's not, it's not quantifiable. We have to estimate it. We have to estimate it on a balance sheet. And whatever estimate we give it is, is probably not exactly accurate. Let me read Ethan's take on it. He says, influence and connections are social capital. A person or entity who has good social capital can ask favors, influence decisions, and communicate efficiently. Social capital is of primary importance in politics, business, and community organizing. Jason Eaton of Social Thread LLC explained to me that capital can be in the form of equity or debt. In social capital, a person can owe favors, decision-making influence to another person or entity. So I can owe you something. You, maybe you've done something for me, and I've told you, hey, when you need me, I'll be there. Social capital is incredibly powerful. It has immense impact in business, and it has immense impact in life. The person I think of whenever I hear the term social capital that immediately comes to me is a man that was uh, lived just up the road from where I grew up in Pennsylvania in my teenage years from my grandparents. His name was Buddy Shoemaker, and he made wine. And he had a system. You brought him stuff that could be made into wine. He made it into wine and gave you about 60-ish percent of it back and kept the other 40% in return for making it. Well, that's a material capital exchange. But that material capital exchange led to incredible social capital. If you've ever heard the song Dust on the Bottle by David Lee Murphy, he was that dude in that song. Like When I heard that song the first, I'm like, how does he know Buddy Shoemaker? I'm sure he's passed away by now. But I'll tell you a story uh, that happened right in front of me. Every year I would take these Concord grapes up to Buddy from my grandfather's. Big, giant sacks. Usually I usually had to take several trips. This was before I was old enough to drive a car. And before I was doing it, after we moved up there, you know, the old man would do it himself. And he'd send back some wine, usually around a gallon, gallon and a half is what the old man would get out of it every year. And... Uh, One day, Buddy comes down the road and walks up on the porch, and there's no grapes yet. It's earlier in the year. It's early summer. It's a beautiful day. Old man's sitting outside listening to his polka music. I'm sitting there talking to him, but wishing the hell something was on the radio other than polka music. Given that's what was going on, it must have been a Sunday, now that I think about it. Buddy walks up to him, has a bottle in his hand, like a proper wine bottle, instead of the jugs that this stuff usually came back in. 
hands it to the old man. The old man's like, so, so what's this? He said, it's your wine. It's nine years old. And that's when your wine peaks. And I knew if I, if I told you that, it wouldn't matter. You'd, you'd never save any of that wine that I, I bring back to you. You like to drink. So I saved it for you. And I'll bring you one bottle a year from now until one of us dies. And I got to say, the look on my grandfather's face was something I've never seen him express any other time in my life. The gratitude was exceptional. It was beyond words. I cannot explain it to you. And I saw a softness come on this man. This man, in my opinion, to this day, is the toughest son of a bitch I ever knew. He had pieces of coal in his arm from a mine collapse. He's like, ah, whatever. Right. The, the guy was just tough as nails his whole life. He came here as a child from the Ukraine. He grew up mining coal. He served in World War II in the Navy. I mean, the man was just stone cold hard. And he melted. And I just would say, do you think if there was anything he could have ever done to help Buddy or anybody Buddy wanted helped, That if, if he had called the old man and asked him to do it, you think he would have said no? Let me tell you, I knew a lot about this old man. And uh, he never once called somebody up or asked him and said, Hey, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, so I'm asking you. As a, no, it was never done as manipulation. He did what he did because he loved making wine. He loved to see people's face when he when he turned their base product into it and see what how they appreciated it. He'd love to give it away. He you know, he probably could have drunk himself dead by 40 if he had, had drank half of what he'd kept. He, what he did with all the surplus was mostly he gave it away. If he went to a wedding, he had a bottle. You know, with a story behind it. He was he was that's who he was. He was just being himself. But the social capital was beyond understanding. This was a poor community. If you if now it is the 80s, but if you made 12 bucks an hour with a full time job where I grew up there, you were considered well off, and you, for the place you lived pretty good. Yeah, I mean that was like oh you've been working for like the aluminum factory for like 10 years to get to that level, and if you weren't if you'd worked there long enough to be making 12 14 bucks an hour and get off swing shift, you really had it made. So this wasn't a, a community with a lot of resources. But the man had wealth because of that social capital, even in an impoverished area. And you can do this in your business as well. First you have the, the social capital of the leader or the head or the well-known people in the business looking out on the world, interacting with customers and community. But you also have, if you have employees or you have that community itself helping the mission of the business, the leadership's relationship with them. I was a tough bitch to work for, but my people loved me, and I know they did because they told me. And I actually had to learn to rein it in a bit because I realized, especially when I was young and I was doing more physical work and I had people working for me that were 10, 15, 20 years older than me, I was pushing them too hard physically. They were trying to keep up with me because they felt obligated to. And, you know, as I get older now, I really appreciate, like, wow, you really were a dick in some ways. But they knew I was trying to make everything better for everybody there. That's how you gain social capital. 
Your people need to feel that you care about them. It, that, I, I didn't say you need to care about your people. I think most people that run a company, big or small, do care about their people. Now, you might get to a level where people are just numbers, there's you know, the, the trillionaires or whatever. But in general, when you got a business and there's 50 people in it, you can bet the guy running it cares about his people. Because running a business of that size is hard. And if you don't care about them, you can't really do it. But it doesn't mean a hill of beans if they don't know it. So cultivating that social capital internally and externally is something that every entrepreneur needs to be doing. Next up is material capital. This is what Ethan said about it. Non-living physical objects form material capital. Raw and processed resources like stone, metal, timber, and fossil fuels are complexed with each other to create more sophisticated materials or structures. Modern buildings, bridges, and other pieces of infrastructure along with tools, computers, and other technologies are complex forms of material capital. Great. What does that mean to us? Well, let's start at it on an individual level. Most people's lives are full of material capital that has very little value. I mean, if you look around the average person's house, you can probably find 20 things, you know, in any given two rooms and say, when's the last time you did anything with this? And I'll say, I, I don't remember. Well, there was a, an exchange to get that piece of material into their home. They bought it. Most of the stuff they bought. They bought it with financial capital. They bought it with money. They exchanged their life force, because that's what your money is. Your money is a representation of your life force. You've done something to acquire it. If somebody gave it to you, just out of the blue, it wasn't even your social capital. Like your uncle just left it to you because you were on a list of relatives. Somebody expended their life force for that, even if you didn't directly. And now you're taking that life force energy that's now financial energy, economic energy, and you're exchanging it for a thing. So that as soon as we understand that, we need to be mindful of the things that we acquire and possess. And if we acquire a thing that is not doing us any good, then we need to determine, does the thing have any value? And if so, how can that value be realized? If you have clothes you do not use, you can take them down to the thrift store and get some money for them and know that whoever buys them is buying something they otherwise could not afford. So it's, it's, it's got a mix of charity and commerce. Or you can just give it away is a pure form of charity. But at least that value is now going to go do something. It's wasted material capital until it does something, until it clothes somebody. So this makes us mindful about our inventory, and it makes us mindful about our expenditures. Before you buy that next thing, do you need it? Are you going to use it? Is it going to? And not everything need be used to produce more capital from a standpoint of material things or financial things to be of value. If something truly is entertaining, well, it, in some ways it expands your, your, your spiritual capital. If it truly does make you happy, if it's not like a drug that softens your misery, if it actually gives you joy, then it has value in that. So if you watch TV and you like TV and you're not rotting your brain with stupidity or listening to the, the mainstream media lie to you and being programmed, but you actually use it for entertainment and true education, it has value. 
if you have a TV that you never turn on, you have stranded material capital. Now think about that in the world of business. How many businesses can you walk into and find a lot of materials in that business that never get used? It's stranded material capital. What about a piece of equipment that does get used? Let's say you have a, a company that does work right, of some sort, like backyard, home construction, and stuff like that. They put in decks and fences and stuff like that. And one day they got a customer that needed some stuff done, and they wanted them to go ahead and put some pipe in the ground uh, for electrical work. They said this company doesn't do electrical work, but you know they needed to trench in a couple trenches and put the conduit in, and the electrician would come behind and like, yeah, while you're doing this, since you're tearing everything up, why don't you do that? And they went out and they bought a trencher. They purchased it. They put it on the balance sheet as an asset, and they hold it. It's now a piece of material capital. It's a tool. And they find that they, you know, by, by offering the service of trenching, they pick up three or four jobs a year where they get to use that trencher. That trencher is still stranded capital because you can rent one for less than 100 bucks a day. So, you know, if it's a daily thing, you maybe have $500 a year in it, and they went and spent $6,000 on a trencher they'll almost never inevitably get their money back. It'll be a depreciating asset. It'll eventually fall off the balance sheet as junk, even though it will be perfectly good because it doesn't get used enough. Since it's not being used, it's stranded capital. Now, not every business is ever going to make the mistake of buying a trencher when they shouldn't. And sometimes if you're going to use that trencher every week, now it makes sense to own it. But we should be thinking this way going forward. You know, I have a good friend that may eventually, hopefully, be able to buy the house next door to mine. At that point, there will probably be things that one of us will decide would be good to have in our lives that either will go in on or if one of us buys it and it's not used that often, the other one is never going to buy it because we can share the resource. So you often wonder with companies, like when you have companies and they're like in a strip mall type environment, but they're not a mall, but there's like offices is the resources they could be sharing rather than wasting material capital, which is a stranded capital. And how many of them are there? And if they did all of them, could they hire one more person? Or could all of them collectively use the capital to hire a single person that cleans all four or five offices? Where none of them really seem like they can afford somebody to do that individually. Because when you have more work, the per per hour rate goes down, the person can rely upon it, I have these five jobs every week, an hour in each one, and you see how that works. There's, there's so many things that you can come up with when you start leveraging material capital properly and you don't waste money on material capital, capital you don't need. And my God, folks, do we waste money on material capital that actually is material waste. We all have so much stuff But does it do anything? And again, if it gives you pleasure, that's fine. But if it gives you pleasure once, not so much. You know, ice cream cone does that. It's cheap, it's and it's gone, right? When you buy a thing that makes you happy the day you get it, but you're like a little kid at Christmas time, yay! And a week later, it's laying on the floor, and you have to be yelled at to put it away. And once you do put it away, you don't see it again for the rest of your life. We have adults doing that with stuff all the time. So in your business, you have to be mindful of this because balance sheet. In your life, you have to be mindful of this because, unfortunately, we don't keep balance sheets in our life. 
And we don't realize how much money we waste and how much time we waste and how much space we waste. And you have to think about it. Remember the story I told you about AT&T? If they put this incredibly expensive switching equipment into a central office where it doesn't need to go and it didn't need to be there for another nine months, that's nine months of that capital being tied up when it could have been doing something else and you could have spent the money for it in nine months from now from a different revenue stream, from a different tax year. And then, therefore, you would have you would have built better, right? That same thing can happen to you in your life or your business. The money has now been expended on a thing that wasn't really necessary, and therefore the capital in the form of financial capital is no longer available. So as valuable as material capital can be, it can also be a sink into which money goes and never returns from. Think of it like a heat sink. So an electronic device will put in you know, a piece of metal with some fins on it, basically. And heat will dissipate into that and radiate off. And once that happens, that heat is gone. It's pulled it away from the motor so the motor doesn't burn up. But it's gone. Material capital, when poorly invested in, can be like that heat sink, except instead of being an asset that takes heat away, it's a liability that takes monetary energy away. Just something to think about. Next up is living capital. Ethan said this about living capital. A precious metal dealer who attended both financial permaculture courses of ours advised... Rather than U.S. dollars, measure your wealth in ounces of gold or silver. Recognizing that precious metals are just another form of financial capital, Catherine Austin Fitz recommends that we diversify and measure your wealth in ounces, acres, and hooves. Living capital is made up of animals, plants, water, the soil on our land, the true basis for life on our planet. Let's talk about soil for a second there. Right? We'll get into how this fits your life and your business, but it fits the business of agriculture well. I got two pieces of land, 40 acre squares, good dirt on both of them. They look very, very similar in appearance. However, when you test one, the soil is high in carbon content and high in beneficial microbiological activity. It is incredibly fertile on its own. The other one looks pretty good. It'll support crops, but you're going to have to dump uh, fertilizer on it. Don't you tell me for a second the first one won't sell for more money. And one way we quantify the value of something's capital is if you compare two things that seem like to each other, if one will exchange at a higher rate, we inherently know it has more value. So living capital can be in that kind of permaculture, you know, horticultural ethos of, of true living systems. But when we look at a business, if you're a one-man show, you're living capital. You're a living being. Your well-being is important to the well-being of the business. If I got really, really sick with some kind of disease that I can't really correct... And it drew my health down. It made me tired. It made me weak. It made me not want to get up. It made me angry. It made me miserable. Right? My business is going to suffer for it. Even if you love what I've done up till now, and even if you still wanted to support me, you're not going to spend your time telling people to keep listening to me. If I get on the air every day, I'm like, it sucks. The whole world sucks. I don't know why you people still listen to me. Like You're not going to listen to that. Not for very long anyway, right? It might have been funny right there, but it's, it's not going to be funny if that's who I really became. 
So my well-being is, is incredibly important to this business because I am this business. Well, the well-being of my audience is important too. But there's a variance there. Like if, if the total health of my audience is poor, that's going to hurt the business. If the health or the, the, the feelings or whatever of one or two or a half dozen or even a hundred, I hate hearing it, but it won't really affect the business as a whole. Because they're not critical and key to the business as individuals. The, the, the percentage is low enough to offset it. But when you have employees, one or two can destroy a business, especially if they're key critical, like key man positions in, in the business. You have to something you have to really keep an eye on with employee management. What is the, what, what's going on? And then you all, I, I, I'm, this is going to sound pretty harsh, but there's times you need to determine, can I fix this? Or is it like that chicken that's so injured that the most humane thing you can do is put it out of its misery and turn it into stew? Now, we're not going to stew an employee, but we'll not terminate them. I've had people work for me that were like a rock. They were like a rock that you could always depend on, and something destroyed their lives outside of the business. And their performance began to degrade. And no matter what you did, it seemed like you couldn't fix it. You couldn't bring them back. No matter how understanding you were, it almost enabled the behavior, the self-destructive behavior. And they almost inevitably ended up having to be terminated. And I can think of two in particular that I, I tried. I could not resurrect. I terminated them. They did not do well at first, but both have really great lives now. And of the two, one of them specifically reached out to me and said, you letting me go when you did was necessary, and really what I've built since all goes back to that moment and realizing I had to do something. And if you hadn't, it would have just made things worse. So that's part of living capital is to know that any living thing, you have limits to what you can do as far as influences life force for the good, but you also need to try. So an, another thing a business has to look at as living capital is if you own real estate in a business, then anything alive on that land is part of your capital. Again, let's think about it this way. You become a just a simple property owner that rents properties. You buy a house, you fix it up a little bit, you rent it out. And then, you you know, after a certain amount of time of running it out, you sell it. You, you use the profits and leverage it and buy two properties and then four properties and then eight properties. And let's say you're not with all this permaculture and, and you know, uh, butterflies and bees and stuff, but you just realize people like trees. So you make it a policy that every time you buy a house, you spend the money to buy trees that will do well and grow fast in that climate And, you know, since you're an entrepreneur and you think about leverage properly, you don't do it yourself. You pay a professional company that guarantees the trees to live and grow to go install two to three trees perfectly with irrigation on that property. And your average hold time on a property before you divest of it and flip to another is five years. You're going to tell me your balance sheet doesn't look better after 20 years than if you didn't do that? Are you really? Are you really? Especially some of that probably maybe you hold really long. You're going to tell me that when that first tenant leaves and a new tenant comes and those trees are three years old, you know, and they're actually throwing some shade and they're actually pretty, you're going to tell me you can't command, even if it doesn't go on the property assessment as value, you're going to tell me that property won't command more rent 
Remember the 1% effect? People buy property that is the best they can afford where they want property. And they settle. Every person that buys a piece of property settles. Did you think renting was different? Because it's not. I have a choice between two houses. Pretty much everything is equal. This one has beautiful trees in the yard, and this one has a plain open, plain Jane yard. Actually, this is more critical as a renter because if I'm a buyer and I plan on being there, I'll plant my own trees. If I'm a renter, I know I'm not going to plant trees and I'm not going to be long enough there to see the shade. So living capital, even in the form of trees, has value to us. We intrinsically know this. So in any endeavor with business, if you're controlling property, you should be thinking, how do I make this the, the, the ecosystem on this property better? Not just because that's being a good steward of the land you have the honor and privilege of stewarding, but it also makes good financial sense because if it's really capital, it can be exchanged into other forms of capital. I guarantee you that people that come here for a workshop, for instance, gain more from it now and feel better about it now surrounded by all these trees and all this wildlife and everything that's happened and all this greenery than the people that came at first. There are people that have been since the beginning, they've been to six, seven, eight of these things, that stand here and they, they look at it now and they go, wow, I got to tell you, when I first came here, I never thought this would happen. How much value is there in that? If I ever did get to the point where like, I become like a, such a Bitcoin baller, I can have Jackistan. Or maybe I just want the 95 acres down the road or whatever. You know, whatever it is. I get to that point. And I did decide to sell this place. I think if I bought the place down the road, I'd keep it. Right? Um, but if I did, don't you think I'm going to get more for it with all this living capital on it? Of course I am. So think about that in your life. Think about that in your business. Next up, financial capital. Ethan says, we are most familiar with financial capital, money, currency, securities, and other instruments of the global financial system. The current global society focuses enormous amounts of attention on financial capital. It's our primary tool for exchanging goods and services with other humans. It can be a powerful tool of oppression, of oppression or potentially liberation. This is where I'm going to talk to you about how I think that money, without money, Human society could not exist as it does today. I think it's called Dunbar's number, but basically there's a number that it's 150. That's about the average number of people the average individual can kind of keep track with in their head. You know, Bill this and Bobby that and Susie this and Debbie that, right? And with that number of people, you can kind of run a community without money. It's complicated, but you can do it. You know what Susie likes, you know what Bob likes. And you know that if you don't have what Susie likes, Bob does. So you know if you can give Bob something that Bob likes, he'll give you something you can give to Susie. And you can kind of run like on a, a currency-free village mode up to about 150 people. And after that, it breaks down. It falls apart. It doesn't work anymore. And even at the 150 people, at that Dunbar's number, and I think that's what it's called. I might have the guy's name wrong came up with it, but uh, let's just say it is for now. Um, even at 150, it gets complicated. If you got 10 people in a village where you have most of the needs of the village available within walking distance of the village, you can probably work things out. But how are you going to do this? Let's say that, um, let's say that you need 
Advil. Advil. Something that simple. Because you have a headache. You can get in a car. Okay, first of all, how'd that get there? But let's just imagine cars came from unicorn farts. And you can drive to a store. What, how did that get there? Now, let's pretend that two farts make a car, one fart makes a store building. But you can go in that store, pick up a bottle of Advil, walk up to the counter, trade some financial capital for it. Oh, wait, there it was. And then go home and, 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 and treat your headache. But what went into making that one bottle of pills be in that one place and how many different people were involved in the process from the genesis of the existence of Advil up until the point where you bought that bottle? Who made the bottle? Who developed the seal that made you confident when you opened it somebody didn't lace it with cyanide? Who made the packaging? How did it get to the store? How did it get from the initial place of manufacturing to the warehouse it was at before it got to the store? Who took it there? What vehicle did it get there in? How many different individual things had to happen for that one bottle of Advil? As simple as that is, let alone something as complex as a computer to get to that place on the store shelf where you could buy it. And then how many things that were involved with it Can we say, now, well, dummy, it got there in a truck, stupid. It's not hard to understand. Okay, fine, I get that. It got there in a truck. Where'd the truck come from? Where'd the steel and aluminum and iron, magnesium, that, that, that go into all the parts of that truck come from? Every screw, every bolt, every nut. How could you, without money, Get all these individuals all over the damn world working in unison for the purpose of producing your Chevy pickup truck. How can you do that without money? Go ahead, explain it to me. And you can't. For all the evil shit that money has done, and it is the reckless and relentless pursuit of money in the name of nothing but power that is the problem, not money itself. But for all that evil shit, the status and life expectancy and everything in human existence is better for it existing than it not existing. I mean, we might wax poetically about what it was like to be a Paleolithic person, but, you know, there was a good chance you were going to get eaten by something. When's the last time you woke up and thought, gee, I hope nothing eats me today? Money is why that is not your problem anymore. When was the last time you woke up and said, gee, I hope I can find another rock to crawl under to sleep under tonight because this one's getting kind of smelly? When was the last time you thought, gee, I, I don't know how I'm going to get where I want to go today? When you have options like cars and planes and trains and automobiles, all that shit exists because of money. We don't die contrary to what your TV is telling you, we don't die in large numbers from simple common diseases anymore because money. Money is incredibly important. Money, by being that ledger of accounting of value between people, allows that exchange. I don't want to go into the financial capital part about money management because that we talk about all the time with entrepreneurial subjects. So today I want to talk about it more from a standpoint of understanding what it does and how powerful it is. And so... To me, if you're running a business with employees, 
Everybody in that business should have some financial incentive to work harder, and that does not mean your financial incentive to work harder is if you don't, you won't have any money because I'm going to fire you. A salary or a wage paid to an employee for base performance is just that, and if they don't perform, of course they get fired. That's not what I mean. What I mean is everybody should be on commission in some way. Everybody And people that make more money should continue to get more money and get more advancement. If I'm running a company where we need to constantly hire, and I say, hey, if you refer somebody, you get 100 bucks in your paycheck, the person that refers somebody about once a month and those people work out, I want to make them a freaking manager. Clearly they have people skills. I remember one time, a company I worked for, I was a VP of sales for, we had one of our you know annual meetings where everybody comes in and you know as a sales VP myself and the three other individuals um, that that did that job we had four regions within the U.S. the rest of the company didn't know us very well and then we had each had an inside salesperson and so there were eight technical you know in a technical way salespeople in the company. And then there was like a catalog brand manager and stuff like that. So there's maybe a dozen people that were in, you know, dealing with customers directly or at least with supply chain. So this, this, this fellow who was, I believe he was the COO of this company said, and we had, you know, like 500 people in this giant, you know, like restaurant thing at a, it wasn't really a restaurant. It was more like a hotel, like, uh, like a hotel meeting room, but they do a dinner in. Everybody that's in sales, raise your hands. So 12 of us out of like 500 raise their hands. He goes, okay, everybody with your hand up, put it down. And everybody with your hand down, put it up. Put it up, put it up. Hey, I seen you over there. Put your hand up. Anybody that didn't have their hand up, put it up. He just makes it. He said, everybody with your hand in the air, you should be embarrassed and ashamed of yourself. How the hell are you not in sales? You don't care about this company? He got everybody kind of laughing with it, too. He was a guy that could do that without seeming like a total dick. Right? He had that personality. But he was making a very valid point. Every, he said, every one of you here knows somebody that works for another company that uses a product like we sell. Why aren't you telling people who you work for? And mumble, mumble, you know, people around. Someone like, well, we do that, yeah. Because, well, then you're in sales. You just don't know it. Now, to me, how how would that be better harnessed? An employee referral program for leads. That's how. Hey, you bring us a connection. We put it in the hands of the sales department. They complete it. You get a piece of that commission on the first sale anyway. Now you're incentivized to grow the company. You have, you have a vested interest in the financial success of the company. Stock options are a way that people do this all the time, but there's so many other ways. Even in a small company. You know what? If you have somebody working for you, and you have a company, three, four, ten people, you should have, every single one of them should have a sales contract. Day that, day that you hire them. What's the guy's job? He scrapes the bubble gum off from underneath the tables. I don't care. Give him a sales contract. Put it in writing. Hand it to him. Say, no, it's real. We will pay you 5% of the first 90 days of billing on every con contract we sign because of a referral you give us. Some of them just might do it. You're like, but I, I have to pay them then. You're paying them on business you didn't have, dummy. Are you kidding me? If I, I don't care any company I've ever worked for. If I ever had somebody walk in the door and say, I want a job, 
commission-only sales, and here's the terms. 99% likelihood you're leaving with a contract signed on that day because I got nothing to lose. I got nothing to lose. Now, if I think you're going to basically harness business I already have, that's different. But if you're going to walk business in the door and hand it to me and you want a piece of the business in return, all I have to figure out is how to make it profitable. And if it's profitable after 90 days, it's up to me to get that customer stick around for 90 days. You brought them in the door. Here's your money. And I'll smile when I sign the check. So when it comes to financial capital in a, in a company, you need to think about it beyond the financial reserves of the company, the financial vested interest of the people working there. And then basic financial management, you know, we've done enough on that. We won't go into it today. Next up is cultural capital. All the other forms of capital may be held and owned by individuals, but cultural capital can only be gathered by a community of people. Cultural capital describes the standard, I'm sorry, the, the shared internal uh, and external processes of a community, the works of art and theater, the songs that every child learns, the ability to come together in celebration of harvest, or for a religious holiday, cultural capital cannot be gathered by individuals alone. It could be viewed as an emergent property of a complex system of intercapital exchanges and takes place in a village, a city, a bioregion, or a nation. Let me add, or a company, or any community of any kind. You don't think the TSP community has cultural capital? Are you kidding me? Do you know why people pay me 500 bucks to come spend three days camping on my property? Mostly cultural capital. My social capital gets you interested, but what makes the person come back who's been here three, four, five times is the cultural capital. In other words, the other people that they get to meet and spend time with when they're here. If you've not been to one, I'll tell you a secret. It can be have, you can have some pretty late nights. I had to start putting uh, nighttime quotas on myself, you know, like, time, like bedtime quotas. Um, because I would, I have to get up in the morning and take care of everybody. But you have people, especially the last night, two, three o'clock in the morning, you still have a, co a small cadre of people still awake, hanging out, listening to music, drinking, and, and being together. And you know why? Because it's the last day. And you don't have to do on Sunday by 9.30, so that Darth and I don't pull our hair out, go somewhere other than here. You don't have to go home, but you got to leave. we got to start putting our lives back together. People don't want to leave. It ain't because I'm so great. It ain't because this place is so great. It's because the people that are here are so great. It's cultural capital. It's incredibly valuable. Those people feel like, oh, I'm not crazy. Oh, other people feel like me. And they're like, they start talking about their ideas, and people are like, oh, that's a great idea. And then when they say, well, here's another idea, it's not like a competing idea. It's like an, an adding idea. And people gain so much from that culture. We have some rituals, too. It mentions rituals here. The barter blanket is a ritual. Barter blanket's a ritual. The way we have everybody introduce themselves has become a ritual. It, it came in time. We have knowledge that you only gain if you come here. That's cultural capital. You want to know what talk to the squirrel means? You don't get to know until you become part of the, see, the whole community. TSP has a culture. Right? And if you meet anybody and somehow this podcast comes up and you both listen to it, you have a commonality, and I guarantee you anytime that happens, two people have longer conversations the second they, they do that. One of my friends was hiking out at White Sands Missiles Range out near that area in New Mexico, walking through the friggin' desert in the middle of the night, 
and said he heard my voice and was like, what the hell is going on? Why is Jack here? And he got a little closer and realized, well, that's a podcast. Somebody's listening to Jack. So, you know, so he doesn't freak people out and get shot. He kind of comes in the right way, and, and these people are sitting around a fire, two people sitting there listening to my podcast in the middle of the freaking desert near White Sands. And he says, hey, and they're like, oh, you know, like, hey, the only reason I'm bothering you is I know that guy. And he's like, who? Like, the guy looks at him like his buddy. No, no, the guy I'm, you're listening to. I'm like, you know Jack Spiegel? Yeah. And immediately they, they had a conversation, total strangers. You tell me that's not cultural capital? That's cultural capital. There's no... There's no country. There's no bioregion. That's a virtual nation. So it is a country, but it's not a country. It's a nation. See, the wrong word chosen here was country. It should have been nations. Nations do not, by definition, need to have physical borders or specific land masses. Nations are built on common ideals. And there's many examples of that we won't go into. But cultural capital is incredibly important. As an entrepreneur, you need to be building cultural capital in your customer base. But you also, if you have employees, you want cultural capital in your, your company base, your employee base. Before Yahoo bought it and screwed it up, one of the best places you could have worked was Broadcast.com, the company that Mark Cuban created and sold for ridiculous amounts of money to, to Yahoo. Because Yahoo was dumb, didn't know what they bought, and they broke it. Because it was an incredibly intelligent design company. Basically what they did, this is before podcasting, they would call up radio stations, hey, would you like to put your radio station on the internet? Now you got to think, this is not yesterday. This is early 2000s, late 90s. Started out as a company called AudioNet, became Broadcast.com. And they got incredible sign-up rates. And basically the whole place was made up of people developing better and better technology to do it with, people managing the technology that was doing it, and people acquiring business. You had basically sales, development, and delivery under one roof, and they all worked together. Big giant data center, and I designed it. I designed them a $1.5 million data center. The biggest individual single sale I ever made in my life at that point. $1.45 million sale. So I know the company while I was there. When you when you have a company with that big of an order, you don't just get that as the first one. So I had done several multi, you know, like several hundred thousand dollar builds for them. I established a lot of relationships. So what I'm about to tell you about the employee morale and attitude in this place is firsthand knowledge. When you walked in that place, you saw guys with their headsets on doing basically a telemarketer's job with a freaking grin on their face a mile wide horsing around with each other between calls and no manager going around and going, hey, 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 back on the phone. Those guys were so incentive-based, you didn't have to make them call anybody. They were going to do what needs to be done. If they felt like taking a break, they didn't ask anybody. They took their freaking headset off, logged off their computer, and they went and played pool or foosball or air hockey or some shit like that. They had a great big cafeteria. They had great big lounge chairs, Right? But they worked their ass off, and anybody that didn't work their ass off went out the door. But everybody had a good time. And the engineers, you know, they talked to the people that were on the, 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 the sales side. Everybody got along. Everybody was able to talk together. And that place had a culture. It had a culture. 
And it was it was when you were trying to bring you know you, this is a competitive landscape. You don't just hire people to do all these jobs. You want the best. Well, when they brought somebody in and they realized we really want this guy to come work here, salary's one thing, but they would walk so take a walk through the place. What do I need a visitor's bag? No, you don't. Just just take a walk through the place. Go talk to some people. And the guy would come back and go, Yeah, when can I start? That's how valuable that cultural capital was. Again, for Yahoo just totally screwed it the hell up. And I don't know so much how bad they screwed up the cultural capital, but they screwed up the delivery side. They just didn't know what they bought. They bought it because it sounded good and it made their balance sheet go up. That's cultural capital. And you need to be thinking about how to build that in your life, with your community, with your family. See, families can have cultural capital. Families have their own rituals. Families, families have their own things that they do, the things that bind them together. You know, in many ways, and I'm having almost like an infographic vision right now with these eight forms of capital, I would say that financial capital would be like the branches of a tree that reaches out and bridges everything back together. Financial capital is what allows that bottle of Advil to be have different things that were made in a million different places make it available in this one spot. I don't know where everything else goes on the tree, but I would say that cultural capital is the root of the tree. It's the binding agent that holds everything else together, that holds the tree up, that keeps it from being shoved over in the wind. And that's true of a family, a family with strong traditions, strong values, strong culture will stay together even in hard times. A family less bound by those things will fall apart. This is one reason that some of the longest-lived institutions in the world are religious institutions, the Catholic Church, for instance. It, 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 you know, and if you look at, okay, you got the Catholic Church, you got the Buddhist faith. One of them's wrong. Right? I mean, maybe both of them are in some portion of what they believe, but if, if either one of them's fully right, well, one of them's fully wrong. You see how that works? Right? That's how that works. But yet they're both enduring. Why? Strong cultural capital. They're bound by religion and belief. They're, they're, they're bound by commonalities in morality and value. And neither one of them are a village, a city, a bioregion, or a, a, a country, right? And I got to be fair to Ethan. I said he, he said country. He said nation. So I, I agree then 100% with that that term as far as nation. But is the Catholic Church a nation? I don't think it is. Maybe if we do enough mental gymnastics, we can get it to fit the virtual nation definition. And maybe that's what makes it a nation. Maybe that's what makes a nation in the first place. Whether that nation is a large nation that we call a country or a large nation that we call a faith or a micronation that we call a family. Maybe it is simply the cultural capital that binds it. Like I said, if I was making that infographic, I don't know where everything would go, but I know that cultural capital would be the root of the tree. Lastly, the eighth one, experiential capital or human capital. We accumulate experiential capital through actually organizing a project in our community or building a straw bale house or completing a permaculture design. The most effective way to learn anything comes from a blended gathering of intellectual and experiential capital. 
My personal experience in getting a master's degree at Guy University showed me that experiential learning is essential for my effective functioning in the world. I was able to do projects instead of take classes. I'm now collaborating, collaboratively organizing the local permaculture guild and co-running successful permaculture design firm. Now, of course, he's coming at this fully from a permaculture mindset, um, where I'm saying, like, how does this apply to life? So you have two people that you can hire as an attorney. Okay, One of them got straight A's at one of the top law schools in the country. The other one went to a good law school, and they graduated with a B plus. Who are you going to hire? If that's all the information you have, you might think top law school, straight A's. Okay. Straight A guy just passed his bar. If he takes your case, and you're being tried for murder, will be the first murder case he ever tries. It will be the first case he ever tries as a, as a defense attorney. The other guy, Mr. B-plus student at a decent law school, has been practicing in the field of criminal defensive law for 20 years. Who are you going to hire now? You're having brain surgery. You have a guy that came out of his, his surgical residency and all, and he is a top surgeon in some sort of neurosurgery where you're going to risk your life. Another guy, you know, he didn't quite have the pedigree, but he's been practicing uh, medicine and, and has, has completed his residency and fellowship and everything like that 20 years ago, and he's done this surgery a thousand times. Who do you want doing your surgery? You probably are okay with the first guy doing it with the second guy standing in the room, or at least on call. But you kind of want that guy with the experience, right? Experience transcends from intellectual concept to doable thing, right? So I can study a thing, but I don't really know a thing until I do a thing. I can describe exactly how to draw a picture. I can study an art book that tells me how to draw a picture of something simple, like Garfield the Cat. And I can stand and tell somebody exactly what to do. And if they're a natural artist, they can follow my instructions and make a very good-looking Garfield the Cat. If I don't have the natural talent to draw Garfield the Cat, the only thing that will get me there is constantly trying it over and over and over again. If I develop enough experience and I have enough base talent and capability as an individual, I'll eventually be able to draw Garfield the Cat. Have you ever watched somebody, like I said during the intro, have you ever watched somebody do something that they've done a hundred times before, though? Isn't it insane how easy they make the most complex things look? And all of us have something like this we can do. All of us have something that others look at you and go, holy crap, no matter how insignificant you think you are, you have something you've developed the ability to do. There are people that would look at me, sit down and do a podcast, And go, I don't even understand. Well, if you did 3,000 podcasts, and if before you did that you spent 20 years in professional sales and marketing giving presentations in front of rooms, you would just be able to sit down and do a podcast too. New people do it every day and do a good job of it. It's not that hard. But there's there. I don't know how many people there are that go as diverse as I do that can sit down in a morning 
at 10 o'clock and still not know what they're going to talk about today, make a decision at 10.30, go live on the microphone at 11, and deliver an executed, a well-executed podcast. It's experience. And you can take it in any world. I've spent quite a bit of time doing mechanical work, and you have somebody trying to get a nut on a, on a, on a, on a bolt in some weird, awkward angle, or you got you, anybody that's ever worked on a car or a tractor or something, you know what I'm talking about. You got to twist your hand and hold your tongue just right and get up underneath there and feel it and do little bitty turns at a time and get that nut started. And somebody can sit there and try to do that over and over and over and get angry and be in, there's no way to get that on there and you just walk over and do it. The reason you can do it is you did it before. And the best thing you can do is take it off and have them do it again. And once they know it can be done, they're more likely to get it done. And once they feel it the first time, the experience transcends the intellectual concept of what needs to happen into understanding the tactile response to making it happen. That's experiential capital. As an entrepreneur, you have all your experience going for you with whatever you're doing. And so it needs to be harnessed so it's not stranded, and it needs to be cultivated so it continues to grow. If you have employees, you need to do it within them. This is why companies have things like we pay for you to go to college. Or they have, you know, like you can go get your RCDD if you're in the field that I was in. Or you can get your, you know, your, I don't know, your Microsoft certification or whatever it is, right? Because the more experience you have, the more you can do. So we're going to pump you with the intellectual side and execute with the, 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 the doing side and build the experience because you're more valuable to us now. When you're dealing with a modern company, though, and we can leverage our impact around the world through the Internet, you have the experiential and human capital of your entire audience and customer base. If you do what you do for your people well enough to where they know that you're doing it for them, you're not just a place they buy a widget, that you actually give a shit about them, a lot of times when you need something, they'll reach out to you and tell you how to do it. It's happened to me so many times. I'm trying to figure this out, and I just can't. I'm going to get to it. And then 20 damn emails come in and give me step-by-step step how to do it. And then you do it because you feel like, shit, I better do this, man. The person took the time to put this together for me. There's so much experience out there. And then on top of it, you literally have access to experience. No matter who you are, if you have Google because you can search for information that was gathered by experience. There's a lot of information out there masquerading as experiential capital that's really only intellectual capital or even pseudo-intellectual capital. People make content just because content creates traffic and traffic has value. But when you put a video on and you see a guy assembling an aquaponics project and he's putting it together, and you look at that video and it says, 2014. And you go to his channel, okay, and in the latest video uploaded yesterday, and you start looking through his channel, and that thing he was doing in 2014, he's like, you know, I don't do it that way anymore. I do it this way because you can take that shit to the bank, right? When you, If it's me and you see me going from a bell siphon to a time deb and flow with two two pipes instead of one, and I say, this thing won't won't ever mess up. It will never get stuck. You'll never come out here and have to readjust it. It will just work forever. Or when it doesn't work, you throw away your $8 timer that wore out after three years and plug in another. You know that person's telling you something's going to work. 
You've now leveraged their experiential capital into your life. You don't have to go through the learning curve. Now, you're still going to have to get the experience of finding a tub and putting it there and getting the water balance and all that other stuff, but you just shortcut everything. You're setting up a business. You need to do this. You need to pay attention to people that have already been there that already did this. All, the, all of you that are finally getting into crypto and think, I'm going to run out and buy all these altcoins, and you sure tell just buy Bitcoin and hold it. Right? It's going to go up. It's going to go down. Yeah, we know. We've been there. <laughs> we've been there. We've ridden a roller coaster. We've gotten the nosebleeds. We got excited about all these weird things. We threw our money into it. We lost our money. Take our advice. If you want to break some off for some risk plays, that's fine. There's money to be made there. But this is the basic tenet. Like, this is the king. It has been crowned. It's a young prince, but it's already got the king's crown on it. This is going to work. The decision's been made. You can trust the people who have been here, and we've been there and done that, right? And there's so many places like that that you're just starting out. The hell with people's opinions. Look for the people that did it. And the thing about online content creation, if somebody says they've been doing it for 10 years, well, assuming they've been documenting it for 10 years, you can verify that. You can go back and look at their track record in their history and say, oh, okay, yeah, this person's experiential capital is valuable. And you know what else that is? That's an asset you can sell because of its capital, it can be exchanged into other capital. So when I have a great deal of experience doing something, if I put together an e-course on it, some of you are going to pay for it. Right? Why? Because you believe that I can help you learn to do it too because I did it. Because the experience is more valuable than the intellectual mindset. There are so many people that can tell you about a thing, but they can't do it. They can't do it at all. And there's certain things that have certain muscle memory and mechanical dexterity. You can't convert them into true capital until you do them over and over and over again and develop the experience. The muscle memory of operating a firearm effectively every time. That's something you can only gain through experience. There's so many. Swinging a hammer, as simple as that is. You watch some people swing a hammer, you're like, oh my God, he's going to hurt himself. You just know. That arm's all stiff, and they're trying to use brute force. There's no flex to the wrist. That nail's bouncing all over the place. Using all that, even if they hit the nail, it's going to bounce off, and their hand's going to slip, and they're going to cut the shit out of their hand. Right? They're going to get hurt. You take a hammer, and you show them, thump. And you let that strike fall, just like a systemic strike in martial arts. Just thump. You let the weight, like freaking hammer weighs, you know. Like when we were doing the nails here for this project, a four-pound sledge, a four-pound head on a sledgehammer with the leverage of a handle and the leverage of a human arm. But only feeling it, only feeling it will get you there. It's so amazing, too. Like sometimes if you're doing something that's, that's martial in nature, not necessarily martial arts, but martial in that it is, it is mind and body working together. The mind tells the arm to do a thing, and then the arm does the thing, Right. When that's going on and a person's not there and a good teacher can come by and say, just relax and take the arm and move the arm a certain way. And as soon as it's felt, it clicks and the experience becomes capital internalized. Teaching someone to shoot a shotgun. Keep your head down. Follow through. Lead the target. You know, all of it becomes instinct. The day that you make the shot perfect, a few times, not once, but a few times, there's a feeling to how a shotgun flows. And once you have that feeling, not only do you become very good with it, at any point that you mess up, no one needs to tell you what you did. You know what you did. I picked my head up. 
Didn't do it all my life. Still, I picked my head up on that shot. And you know what you did because you have the experience. Where the inexperienced person will insist, no, I didn't, until you show them a video of them doing it. That's Experiential capital is probably the most valuable thing we can acquire without the expenditure of financial capital. The only thing it costs us, though, is far more valuable, our life force. So make sure you're expending it well. With that, we're going to wrap up. I hope you enjoyed this show. I think this is a different way of looking at things. I want to thank Ethan Rowland for all the work he's ever done in the field of permaculture and for writing this article so many years ago. I know I've talked about it more than once, and I will definitely probably talk about it again. I think there's a lot more that can be done with this concept to help people have a better understanding of real value in the world. And if you want to build value in the world, if you want to exchange value in the world, and if you want to build value in your life, it kind of starts with understanding value in the first place. And what having eight forms of capital lets us do is break down the different forms of value into quantifiable ideas so that we can understand them. But it's not just like a taxonomy project where, like, this is the phylum, kingdom, and species, right? No, it's more of, see, once I understand it and I can quantify it, then I can measure it, then I can comprehend whether I'm doing it right or not, then I can do it better, I can find the flaws in it, and I can know that it exists so it can be leveraged. And capital often can be leveraged without it being exchanged. That's the last little message I want for you here. Um, so if I have social capital and I use that social capital to influence something, as long as it is for good and no one gets hurt and everybody's happy with the results, it hasn't cost me anything. In fact, by using it, it grew. The person who I asked to do something who did it and then it worked, and then it benefited them, it benefited the person they did it for, it benefited me because I got to see what I want to happen happen, both of those people are likely to be, to be more likely to, to help me again in the future, and I them. So my action of social capital utilization has actually grown not my own, but all three parties in that instance. And if you start thinking about it, almost every form of capital you have, can be that can be done with it. I know you're thinking, not financial capital, What do you think a loan is? A loan is where I leverage my financial capital to gain from the form of interest, but I don't actually exchange the money. The money's still mine. Any one of these things, you, if you think about it, the most powerful thing you can do is leverage it for good. Leverage it for good, meaning you still have it, but you were able to exert some sort of result from it on the other end of things. With that, let's wrap things up with um, reminding you guys that if you like this show, if you derive value from the show and you want to help us out, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Um, today's item of the day from tspaz.com is wild planet mackerel fillets and organic extra virgin olive oil. These things are great. I'm not going to say a lot about them today. I'm going to say read the write-up on the website today at thesurvivalpodcast.com, but they're fantastic. And if you're thinking sardines, no, they're not like sardines. They have a lot better texture. They're skinless. They're boneless. They taste great, and they don't have that sardine stink when you open the can. I've gone to eating these over sardines. I love sardines. Don't get me wrong. I don't eat them very much because my wife's always like, that smells, and it's like, oh, God damn, I just want to eat my freaking 
Ah, I found these. I'm like, okay, I can open these, and she doesn't really say much about them. You know, she doesn't want to sniff the can or nothing. But it, 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 it's not like as soon as I open, she's like, "What are you eating?" And so I eat them a lot more. They're also these are not like giant king mackerel or something. They're Atlantic mackerel. They're smaller fish, lower on the food chain, so they don't have a ton of mercury in them. So they're safe to eat frequently. Uh, they have a huge amount of protein and storable fat. They're an oily fish. They have Fat, plus they're in one of the healthiest fats in the world is in extra, extra virgin olive oil. And they store for damn near ever. I just ordered some that came in this week to replace mine. And I'm um, trying to look here so I get it right. They, let me, okay, I got them on 4-11, and their expiration date is 5-18-25. Four years. And so it's protein, it's fat, it's storable, it's cheap. It's about $3.50 a, a, a pack if you buy a 12-pack. They, they taste delicious, and I give you several different ideas for how to use them. They're not just something you eat out of a can like a sardine. There's a lot of cooking and stuff that you can do with them. A salad that I made out of them in the write-up, if you went to an artsy-fartsy restaurant, that salad would probably be freaking 18 bucks. I had maybe $2 in it. So, so check these guys out. And remember, it doesn't matter. What you buy, as long as you start at tspaz.com, you help support us in the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day, in a way, is a, almost like a continuation of yesterday's song, which was called My Town. And it was uh, from Michael Stanley Band, who were doing all this week Michael Stanley Band songs. And I, I, you know, I just noticed something today, too. And I felt kind of dumb. I didn't recognize the pattern originally. Michael Stanley Band, MSB. And they actually have a logo that says MSB on it from one of their albums. So I just thought that was cool. And I think I said this song is like a continuation from yesterday's song. No, yesterday's song was Rosewood, Rosewood Bitters, which, as I said, was from a plant called the Wood Rose in Hawaii that actually has a precursor to LSD in it. Now, it was the Tuesday song called My Town. And that was kind of the cultural capital of a town is what that song was really all about. Uh, how we all have kind of a nostalgia for the place we grew up, our old neighborhoods and things like that. And there's that bond and brotherhood uh, being in a place like that. And I said that uh, that didn't really resonate with me personally with where I grew up because I knew those places weren't the same. And almost like a prophet or something, uh, John Adam, who puts these together two days later as a follow-up song, it kind of reflects my opinion. It's called Just Another Night in America. It's about a guy driving around and just being beat, tired, and beat down. And, you know, he could maybe use a beer or a, just some sleep or something. But something has him compelled to drive around the old town, the old neighborhood, whatever, looking for some solace in it. But it's not what it used to be. Everybody's gone. Everything's changed. The cultural capital is either diminished to nothing or totally different. And here's this guy struggling with life just another night in America well the importance I think we can take from that is that is how so many people feel we feel lost we feel like everything that we believed in is gone maybe not our town maybe our whole country we feel that way about building up these eight forms of capital insulates us from that especially the cultural capital that's why I saved it for the anchor point at the end of the, of the show today Build up that cultural capital. Build up the community of people that do see things your way. You won't quite feel so alone anymore, and maybe just another night in America can have a little bit more of an upbeat feel than it does in this song. With that, has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. 
Just as 